You're listening to the Golden West Podcast. I'm Ryan, your host. Join me as I explore the best in food and wine on the West Coast, including California, Oregon, and Washington. We're about to go on a journey, exploring the people and stories behind the vineyards, farms, and kitchens. So grab a drink, fire up your grill, pull up a seat to the table, and listen in. We'll talk about it coming up next. Today's show is brought to you by Kova Coffee. Kova is a specialty roaster out of Portland, Oregon, and they're known for single-origin coffees, and they're committed to long-term, sustainable partnerships with coffee producers. Now, if you're like me, I love coffee. I always start my day off with a cup or two. I make it by hand with a pour-over, but it doesn't matter how you make yours. You can use a pour-over, maybe use a Chemex, maybe you just use a basic Mr. Coffee machine. It doesn't matter, but what does matter is the beans. You don't want those burnt, over-roasted corporate coffee beans that you find in the grocery store, and I don't even bother with that store brand stuff. So here's what you do. I'm going to make it really easy for you. Just go to covacoffee.com, that's C-O-A-V-A, coffee.com, and use our promo code, GOLDENWEST. You'll get $5 off your first purchase. Do it now while you're thinking about it, and your coffee will show up at your doorstep as soon as you know it. Today in the show, we have Adam Sabelli Frisch. Adam is the owner and winemaker at Sabelli Frisch Wines, where he crafts restrained old-world wines from low-impact vineyards with a focus on rare, forgotten, underappreciated, or historic grape varieties. Enjoy my conversation with Adam. Adam, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Ryan. Pleasure being here. Well, I think, uh, you know, it's great to have you here. I think the first thing is let's get into your little bit of background before we, you know, jump into your wine and and all the good stuff. Sure, absolutely. Uh, I'm originally from Sweden, um, and that's I grew up in Stockholm. I was one of those little inner city kids and didn't have any connection with farming or anything like that. And Stockholm is a very small town then, very innocent. It's changed a lot since then. But, you know, very early on, I'll kind of keep this as brief as I can, but very early on, I got very interested in film. I've always been, like, obsessed with film and movies. And early on, I realized I wanted to be a cinematographer because it was, like, a good combination of technical side and also artistic side. So, which is a gift to know very early on what you want to do in life because I see a lot of youth, young people, maybe not knowing that or finding it out kind of late. And Anyway, so that, you know, I had shitty jobs like everyone else to just to survive but i kind of moved towards my goal and started shooting mainly music videos in sweden you know low-end hip-hop stuff and and then i got this was in the, in the 90s yeah this is end of 90 I, I would say i started as a dp or a cinematographer in 2000 that's that's kind of the the, the year i have in my mind that's how i remember it <laughs> but you know it's okay, maybe right. a little shy of that but eventually I got an agent in London out of the blue and they wanted to represent me. And I saw that that was a big opportunity for me. So I sold my, or gave up my apartment, sold all my stuff and, and moved to London. And it was kind of in London that I built my cinematography career. So I, I lived in London for eight years. Wow. And then, yeah. And then all, you know, like they say, all roads lead to Rome. Well, for film, film people, they kind of lead to Hollywood. <laughs> so, uh, in 2010, I moved to Los Angeles, where I currently still live. Yeah. How was the food in London? Because I've heard, well, I've never been there, but I've heard mixed reviews. <laughs> oh, I, I, that was just at the turning point of, you know, like 
all these uh, Gordon Ramsay and all these chefs became, and it's really, really improved very, very quickly. And now I would say London is one of the best food towns in the world, but it certainly wasn't up until that point, you know, when I moved there, you could still find these horrible, horrible restaurants that you would just never, ever get away with these days, you know? Yeah, I know there's a lot of Indian food influence. And, oh, my God, you know, yeah. type of things. So, yeah, uh, yeah, for people who like that type of food um, as well, I'm sure it would be a, an amazing place to visit. And like you mentioned, coming up to kind of become, you know, a food destination. Um, you know, it's funny because when you look at different food destinations and cities, I was listening to a webcast with uh, Greg Harrington from Gramercy Cellars up in Washington. And he, okay. I guess he started out as a psalm um, over in, uh, this was in Las Vegas early oh, God, on. Yeah, and, yeah. and this was like before Las Vegas became a food destination. And mm-hmm. he kind of talked about like he wanted to move to New York because that's where the food was. And they, like he didn't really have a lot of foresight that Las Vegas would turn into <laughs> a, a food destination. Right, right. I don't think a lot of people really realize that, but you know, it kind of happened quickly and then did, suddenly yeah. like a lot of things do. So you were over in Los Angeles and, and doing, some cinematography and kind of following your passion there what was the the connection between you know transitioning to wine (laughs) well there isn't a connection really but i mean very briefly you know i i after all the music videos that i did you know as a young man more i moved to commercials which is you know you're selling yourself to corporate America or corporate world a little bit and but one of the perks of that uh, it's a great job you know i'm not complaining at all but one of the perks of that job is that you get to travel a lot and you get to eat in really good restaurants when you're out there because you go in with the clients and the ad agencies and you get to drink really nice wine. So for 15 years, you know, doing that job, I, I was always eating well and drinking well uh, in restaurants. And, you know, with that came a, a kind of a wine interest, of course. But I never thought. I mean, you know, I had like a romantic notion, maybe like everyone has, or wouldn't it be nice to have a vineyard in France one day, you know, like, like that dream, but I never thought, you know, this was anything I could do or, 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 and, but then eventually I got into home winemaking. I got more and more interested in the process of how wine is made and, and yeah, and that led to eventually this. And, uh, I, I don't know, should I, maybe I should just launch into that, right? Well, yeah, let's talk a little about your home winemaking around kind of what year was that? And was that happening in Los Angeles? Yeah, it was. And it wasn't like long before I started uh, the winery because I'm one of my good traits and my bad traits is I just I just go for things sometimes, you know, when I feel like, oh, this feels right. You know, I'm very much a gut person rather than an analytical mind. But yeah, the home winemaking was just I was. Here's the thing. I was very into natural. 2015, I should say, I had my first natural wine and it blew my mind, not because it was so amazing, but just tasted so much different than all the wine I've had had up until that point. So I got very into that deep, deep into the natural wine stuff. And I wanted, you know, that kind of made me want to make natural wines at home, try to do that, which is very simple. You know, you just use... Uh, native yeast, you know, you don't have to buy anything really. You just crush the grapes and they kind of take care of themselves. I mean, it can go sideways very quick as well. And, and it did a couple of times, but 
And where do you source the, where were you sourcing grapes as a home winemaker? Well, I, I mean, I used to go to Albertsons and buy table grapes just to experiment with. Really? Oh yeah. I just cleaned them out at Albertsons when they had a deal. And I still have some of that wine in here. It's horrible, you know, uh, like seedless flame or whatever the grape was called, you know, it was like a, uh, yeah, and but I also got a little bit locally. You know, you could get some from Simi Valley. You can go down to Temecula. There's, you know, you could buy for the home winemaking guys. You know, but not tons. You know, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, I've heard the, the reasons of why table grapes don't make great wine. I can't recall right now. Maybe you could talk a little on on that and the differences between kind of the, the grapes that grow in vineyards versus kind of table grapes you grow in the grocery, or sorry, that you buy in the grocery store. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting, I mean, and the funny thing is one of my wines is made out of a grape called Flame Toke. And that used to be uh, a very, very big table grape variety, uh, but it had seeds. And then sometime in the 60s and 70s, they kind of genetically engineered uh, grapes to not have seeds. So the table grapes became seedless. I don't know if Got it not that early. It might have been a little bit later even. But also, yeah, exactly. So they kind of, and the, with that comes, they're easier to eat, but they don't have as much flavor or character. Got and it. also and the table grapes are harvested much lower bricks. They're harvested around 16 bricks. I don't know. This is, gets a little technical maybe, but at a lower sugar level, Mm-hmm. Than we use, you know, winemakers, we go till the bitter end. You know, we take as much sugar almost as we can out of many of these grapes. I mean, when you taste a, a wine grape in the field, it is very, very sweet. You know, it's much yeah. sweeter than a table grape because it doesn't yeah, have that acidity. The, yeah. yeah, and you mentioned the seeds there. So the seeds are also providing providing tannins and structure and things like that. Is that right? Exactly, exactly, yeah. yeah. And And also they tend to be bred to be quite large, uh, which means that they have more juice to surface area, if that makes sense. And, and that also isn't ideal necessarily for winemaking or at least red winemaking. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, so you're, you're doing some home, home winemaking. You're, you know, doing your, your job on the side, your full-time job. <laughs> yeah. Like you mentioned, you, you know, some grapes at the grocery store, some yeah. fruit there. Yeah. You're, you're, you're getting some fruit some, uh, from, from some other places. Were you just kind of picking up the phone and making some phone calls to acquire some of that other fruit? To, yeah. 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 And some of them one? comes on Craigslist as well, you know. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, you know. You can buy smaller lots and, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And, and were there any resources that you were using? Obviously, the internet was was there at that time and there were certain communities and things. But were there, you know, books or resources that you were uh, doing to learn about the home winemaking? Yeah. Initially, it was like there's a lot of pages about home winemaking. It's actually a lot more pages about home winemaking than there is about professional winemaking, I find. So that was a good you know, quite easy to find information there. But then eventually that led me to read more professional stuff and and kind of try to learn a little bit more. You know, I, I, I'm very, very inexperienced at this still. So so for me, it's still learning, you know. But um, I I moved into, there's one book from Emile Peynaud, I think it's called Tasting and Making Wine, which is a little bit of a, of a, standard in the industry that one's really good and it's accessible as well it's not like scientifically unapproachable you know you can you can understand that even as a as a layman and yeah so that one was good 
I probably learned the most from that book, actually, to be honest. Yeah. And um, so, you know, making this transition to, you know, your own brand and, and the wines here, let's let's talk about how that you know, specific moment came about where you realized, okay, I want to make a business out of this and, and make wine. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I had um, kind of a challenging year in 2017. And I thought what, you know, the phone wasn't ringing as much that year for my services as a cinematographer. And I thought, what do I do now if the phone never rings again, you know, or ever calls again? So that, so that gave me an extra motivation. And it's like, what could I see myself doing, you know? If, if I can't do this and, you know, winemaking was the one thing I really enjoyed um, at that level then. So I thought it'd be really cool to pursue that. And like I said, I, I launched into it pretty quick. I mean, I spoke to my wife, this is probably by 2018, spoke to my wife, I think in June and she's like, well, go for it, do it, you know? And then I registered the winery company, I think incorporated or whatever you call it. And then <laughs> baptism by fire, you know, in September, I was harvesting my first harvest. And it was, I didn't know anything. You know, I found my, my growers on winebusiness.com, you know, um, clueless. Wow. I, it was, yeah. And you, and you mentioned, you know, drinking a natural wine and it was kind of an epiphany. What, you know, were you had dr- drinking before that time? And then what were some of the winemakers that you started drinking and saying, like, wow, this is kind of different and this is really interesting? Well, I can tell you what that wine was. That was a Tony Couturi wine. And it was one of, one of these uber hip uh, food places They're called Night Market and Song. And they do like Thai food, but they also only serve natural wines yeah i've been there it's right a good place it's a really good place right? so we were waiting for tables like you because there's always a line there and we were a group of six i think and so we shared a bottle of wine while we waited and and that wine was just it just reminded me you know my grandfather used to make like plum wines and stuff in sweden um because the only thing you can do there you can't do grapes it's just too cold and they were always had that funky sweet juicy and that's exactly what this sounds really good actually yeah Yeah. (laughs) so that was like wow i didn't know the wines are allowed to taste like this it just reminds me of childhood somehow almost it's like joyful and effervescent and you know it's like a different experience so anyway uh, I forgot your question. Oh, sorry. <laughs> you yeah, well, yeah, just a quick side note on that. I don't know if you've read Chris, um, who's the chef at Night Market. I don't want to botch his last name, but yeah, I-, <laughs> I actually have his cookbook, and he talks in the cookbook about he actually worked a harvest in Lore Valley and oh, really? kind of fell in love with, yeah, some of the wines from Lore and kind of put him on this path of learning more about natural wines. And like you said, they actually have – you know, Night Market has, I believe, three locations now. And, yeah. um, you know, with COVID, they're, they're still doing takeout and things. And yeah, they yeah. have one of the best natural wine lists in all of Los Angeles. They really so. do, really do. And it's such an odd combination. There's a Thai food with that. But somehow it kind of works because quite yeah. often they are a little more fruity and, you know, kind of works with Asian food, I find, you know. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, before you you tried that particular wine, what were some of the wines that you were, you know, drinking out for maybe some of the fancy meals with, uh, you know, paid for by um, on the business expense or right. maybe, you know, at home or things like that? Well, I can't remember that many specifics, but here's when I lived in London, I got obsessed with Amarone wines from Italy. 
And at that time, you could order them on Italian eBay, and they would just ship them straight to London. So I, I still have a huge, actually quite a big collection of Amarone wines that I have here in Los Angeles with it from that time. So they're about 15 years ago. Wow. I got really into those. So I, I knew a lot about those producers, uh, but eventually my taste kind of changes. And, you know, how it normally goes, you start pretty heavy, and then you move into lighter or more elegant stuff for probably but anyway the the, the eating at the, the the nice restaurants and stuff i mean I, it was mainly you know the steakhouse steakhouse type of wines you know bigger things as i recall it i can't recall any specifics right now uh, of, of something that stood out uh but it was oh. all pretty good but big heavy stuff you know that's kind of what we that's kind of what when you go out with people like that it that's what tends to happen you know you're not gonna order very very um, narrow or restrained little things. <laughs> in- well, yeah, I, and I guess that's the, the kind of theme I was going for here to just touch on was, you know, we, we've talked on the show many times about Parker wines and you mm-hmm. can talk about yeah, Parkerization, point scores. And, you know, I was just a kid in the 1990s, but, um, you know, growing up during that time, I just, when you look at the culture of kind of like, <laughs> You know, this was the time when Wall Street was going crazy. We had um, Alan Greenspan, who was the Fed, the Fed chair, and um, you know, business was booming and everything was kind of firing all cylinders. And it kind of showed also in the wine of these big, bold, absolutely, absolutely. you know, op- opulent cabernets. Yeah, yeah. And you, know, you think about Camus, you think about, oh my God. I don't know, you yeah. know, you can think about a handful of yeah. other names. But you know, we've had this kind of pendulum swing back to the other side. Yeah. And, um, you know, to me, you know, it's been really interesting to kind of taste through and taste through kind of both sides. And, yeah, you know, what what are your views there? No, exactly. I, it's, very, it's really, I mean, I think California is in the most interesting spot it's been in for wine in a long, long time. Because it's it's getting really, really good now. You know, there's there's this sense of new world still there, you know, that kind of, that you can... Uh, uh, immediate accessibility to wine but now they're getting much much more elegant i find and it's the i think it's the best time ever and you know there's a market for both you know like i think it doesn't have to be the most you know restrained either you can you can have both in one market and yeah and, and we've seen kind of the popular press whether it's you know big mainstream papers like wall street journal and new york times talking about natural wines and we for a while it was skin contact wines that were yeah. kind of popular yeah. and this was going back to like 2012 so yeah. i feel like it's kind of already in the vernacular now and right. it's already almost kind of not going quite mainstream but it's right know, it's a big and growing market which, yeah. which still and has I, a lot of room for growth and i've kind of backed off a little bit from I still call it natural. You know, it's a natural wine because it's natural inoculation, natural yeast, and quite a low intervention. But with that comes a lot of connotations from mainly established wine drinkers that it's flawed or bad. So I prefer to call it low intervention these days just because I don't want to be too alienate anyone or, 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 you know, and also the wines I make are not the wines that I normally had as a natural wine drinker. I made, this is much more a classic style. This is kind of, I don't know what to call it, but real wines you can age and pair with food, which you almost, or not 
always could do with natural wines. They were kind of often on the glue glue side and the early drink side, which makes sense when you're a small winery, you know, the the two most expensive things to, to, to do is to age wine and to buy Oak for it, you know? So this is, but my wines were made in, in, in the core traditional way in that sense, like to be like every other wine basically, but still retain the good things about natural yeast and, the excitement of that yeah so let's get you know into your wines here i can see four on the website um one of them is actually sold out but yeah. there's three there's three still available so let's just get into them one by one sure uh what you actually start with <laughs> let's start with the uh the mission so for okay. you, know, you can elaborate on this but i know that mission is is one of the oldest grapes in california yeah um and so you know a lot of people don't know that which i think is pretty interesting yeah and the backstory on that i mean i'll keep it as short as i possibly can when i was in my natural wine frame i thought it makes sense it doesn't make sense to make wine from european grapes that have been imported to america so why don't we try to make him out of native american grapes that was with, my initial thought, right? And so there's a whole strand of uh, American grapes with Vitis rupestris and Labrusca or whatever they're called. These are like Muscadines or Norton, Catawba, kind of grapes like that. Or Concord, for that matter, is also, I think, part um, Native American. So I, I thought, ah, that'd be interesting to do natural wines on. So I then I drank a lot of Norton wines from other producers, and they were pretty much all terrible. So I, I thought, well, maybe that's, a, you know, you're a new winemaker. You're going to do it from strange grapes uh, that nobody, you know, it's it's just maybe a bridge too far at this point. So I backed off on that. And then I thought, well, what's the oldest Vitis vinifera European grape in America? And that is Mission. You know, Mission has been here longer than anyone else. It's 500 years now. So, So then I got obsessed with Mission. And that's what led me down the path of Mission. And I tried, you know, every mission I could get my hand on, from the Grand, the Canary Island missions to the Chilean missions to the Argentinian. Uh, and they were all, actually, without exception, they were all pretty good to really good. So I knew the grape had potential, and I knew it had been a little bit misunderstood up here because it's it was really ragged on by, you know, you go back to old literature, wine literature, and they all pretty much say, do not make wine from the mission grape it's not suitable for winemaking i mean they re- i don't know what or why that happened but it has really been mistreated here in california specifically and you know most of it's been torn out there's absolutely almost nothing left you know from being the most grown grape uh, in the state you know in 100 years to almost gone so mm-hmm. so that was a challenge and i had an idea how i thought it should be vinified and that's kind of what I did. You know, I, I did a little uh, longer maceration for the skins because it is a very light colored wine. Uh, and I think what people have done in the past. Yeah, is I can they, see here with the, with the photo here. Yeah. yeah. So what people tend to do because it is very light in color is they tend to vinify it in a light style, not oaky, not, you know, fresh and kind of easy to drink. And I kind of went against that. I, 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 extended the maceration longer time on the skins to really extract those tannins and try to make it a little bigger, you know, and it became really good. It was, it was an interesting experiment. And I think mine is probably 
the biggest of the missions produced in America. And when I say big, it's, I mean, it's not high alcohol, but it has a lot of big mouthfeel in a way, you know? Yeah. yeah. And I'm seeing here naturally fermented, no filtering, no fining and as little sulfites as you can get away with. So maybe <laughs> yeah. talk briefly on, on kind of your process and, and just overall kind of winemaking style. And then we'll jump into the other wines here. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah. So natural yeast, you know, uh, as, as, as much as possible, sometimes, uh, you know, the natural yeast goes in the wrong way. It becomes the wrong strand and then you kind of have to save it. That has not happened on, in the first vintage didn't happen, but it happened in 2019. My Alicante Boucher. Uh, I can't remember what that strain is called. Hanta, not Hanta, but something like that. And just, it, it's going to turn it bad. And I had to kind of save it with an inoculated with a, a commercial yeast. And, and yeah, the SO2 just, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a staunch opponent of it at all. Like you see a lot of natural winemakers or low intervention. They really, most of them, I think. Yeah. They're really, really hard on that. And it's like, that's not, you know, that's not a a cross I need to carry. Yeah. A lot of them are hard on them, but what I meant to say is most of them, you still use it. (laughs) Oh yeah. That that many bottles that have zero. And that's the thing. If you want to be able to ship your wine across the world and, or keep it in stores, you know, you kind of almost have to, I mean, they say you don't. Some people, I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, think, yeah, I, had, I think you do. <laughs> yeah, I had Jared Brandt from Donkey and Goat on, and he talked about if he was selling all his wine locally right there in Berkeley or San Francisco, he probably wouldn't use right. any sulfites. But he yeah. you know, ships to Europe, and he ships all over. Yeah, exactly. So they have to use it now. There and are you can't few- control the... The, you know how it's going to get shipped or the temperatures or anything you know so exactly and, and we'll get into shipping a little bit later but you know um he, you know they they there are a few wines i believe the pet nat and a few others that they he he uses zero okay. uh, at least he, at least he told me but yeah for the most part That's they're they're, yeah. they're doing some additions i love his stuff um, by the way it's really good his his wines are really nice yeah so exactly so um so i'm looking here at the at the notes and this one looks looks really nice like you said it's it's you know clocking at around 13.6 you know alcohol how do you look at alcohol levels so you know that's one thing just i can speak for myself as a wine consumer you know starting out with grocery store wines and then <laughs> moving up to my local wine shop and then even you know, the next step is seeking out winemakers like you and people doing some really interesting things. So it's been a real progression for me. But one of the things was when I first tasted, you know, a handful, I'll say not just one, but kind of more low intervention wines or, you know, kind of more natural wines, Martha Stuman. Yeah, she's uh, great. Yeah, yeah, Steve Mathiason comes Mm -hmm. to mind. It was was really mind-blowing because I had never had anything like that where I could pair it with food it was, you know, lower alcohol, but it still had, you know, amazing flavors. Yeah. And, um, you know, for me, I kind of started shopping by alcohol content, which yeah. I know is is, pro- is probably now I kind of know you can't really do that either. And that's probably not the best way to go about it. But how do you how do you look at balance in your wine when you look at, you know, alcohol and pH and different things like that? Yeah, I mean, it's no hard and fast rule, but um, I tend to go for you know a little bit more elegance and that seems to be happening it's hard to be elegant in in a 15 point wine you know (laughs) you can be you can be but and they can be really integrated i had just uh not that long ago i had a grenache from spain that was 16.1 and it was perfect i mean it was really really nice but 
that's rare, you know. Um, plus, you also retain a little bit more acidity down there, you know, uh, and which is I find more interesting. Um, you you know, you can fake your way at higher alcohol levels, adding stuff, and uh, but they just tend to be a little too soft sometimes uh, at the end, you know. Uh, and I, I prefer, I think it goes better with food to to be in that mid-range. But, you know, I'm not a, you know, I, there's no hard, hard and fast rule for me, you know. But I'll, I, I, what I really want to do in the future, and I'm doing this this year, I'm going to do a little Zinfandel. I'm very excited about that. And I really want to try to keep that one around 13 or something. Because, uh, you know, you look through the Zin uh, wines that are available from California, and they are all or pretty much 14 plus, most of them over 15. It's very, very hard to find. I think Brock sellers make a, a really restrained one and under 13, but that's about it. Like there aren't that many around, you know? Yeah. It's funny you mentioned that. Cause I was actually looking for, you know, a Zin and kind of that style. And I've, I've had Martha Steuben's wine, which is a blend of Zinfandel and, I can't remember the other ones, maybe Carignan and, and Mavedra. Mm-hmm. She puts a bunch of things in that one um, kind of popular red blend. But, you know, I did see the Brock. I haven't tried it yet. But besides that one, I, like you said, I actually couldn't really find, no. um, you know, too many out there. No. Um, and I, I talked to Jared Brand about this again from Donkey Goat. And they, they do not make a Zinfandel. It's just something him and his wife, they – they decided not to make yeah. you know, for whatever reason, just their per- personal preference. But yeah, like you yeah. mentioned, I think there's, there's actually a, a need for that in the marketplace. So that'll be exciting. I think so too. I th- and I think Zin's going to come back. That's my, just my guess. I think Zin's going to come back big because it's been also kind of mystery. I, I think it's always sold pretty well to, to, to consumers, but it's been definitely disrespected a little bit by uh, the wine uh, journalists and, and sommeliers and stuff. You go to like yeah. any cool, like a, a good restaurant with an impressive wine list and you'd be hard pressed to find maybe one or two Zins there. And there's like pages and pages of Cabernets and Chardonnays and Pinot. Yeah, Noirs. that's a really good point. And I think when you look at varietals, like you're working with some really interesting ones we'll get into right now. But, you know, originally when I started going down my wine path, I had Chardonnay and I had, you know, some real buttery yeah. ones, a lot of oak and yeah. big alcohol. Um, and so I kind of decided that, well, I don't like Chardonnay until I tried. Uh, <laughs> Me neither. I, I really have a trouble with Chardonnay. It's one of those varieties yeah, I really struggle until with. Until I kind of tried like a Chablis or, or like right. a Matthias yes. and Chardonnay and I kind of fit, realized, okay, there's, you know, oh, I yeah, kind of yeah, like this. Sure. And then, you know, with Zinfandel, I hated pretty much all the ones I tried, which yeah. over-extracted way too much alcohol for whatever reason. And then until I tried, like I said, Martha Steumann's, which was actually yeah. a blend, but right. I realized, okay, you could have, you know, Zinfandel with a lighter style that doesn't knock you over the head. And so look, it, that was yeah. eye-opening for me too. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, do you know, have you drank any of Pax's wine? Because he does like Syrahs at 12% and stuff. And they're I all... I haven't, yeah, it, it's on delicious. my list. Very yeah, I have I have a, a list and that he he's on my list to try him and Falia and a, a bunch of other... Yeah, you know, interesting. Like you said, Syrahs and different things. So let's get into your Marsan here um, yeah. from Sierra Foothills. Yeah, that was at the time, you know, you have to remember this is three years ago, the inception of this. I wanted to do like a skin contact uh, white. Mm-hmm. And I probably moved away from that a little bit now. But 
that's what I wanted to do then. So this one I chose because no particular reason other than it was an organically farmed vineyard in the Sierra foothills. And, you know, the price was pretty good for, you know, I didn't have very much money to buy fruit for, and they seemed really nice. And so I took, uh, I can't remember. Was it two tons from them? Yeah. Two tons. So uh, that was an experiment. And I did skin contact on that in my, I had two big clay amphoras. So they just stayed on the skins for about four months and it became a pretty interesting wine. You know, it's, it's, it's very peachy notes, mineral notes, but also has a little bit of that skin contact seriousness. So it's, it's a wine that pairs quite nicely with like heavier white wine food, like uh, chicken or risotto or something like that. It's, it's, it's a nice wine. I really glad with how that came out. But as I said, I've personally gotten less and less interested in orange wines so uh, I might back off a little bit on the skin contact for future releases. But that particular wine, was I call it milk-fed. That's The idea behind that is like a recurring special edition. So each year it's a new grape. and it, But it's kind of vinified with a little bit of skin contact in amphoras. But I will probably reduce the skin contact as I move forward. In fact, I did for the 2019, it's a Petit Manseng which is a, um, another um, French, I think it's from, what's the valley? Is it Loire? Uh, I'm, I'm so bad with French wine. Anyway, so that one I did a much shorter uh, uh, skin contact time or maceration time with. So it's a little less skin contacty than the Marsan. But, um, so I'm probably moving in that way. But I'll keep doing that. That'll be my little experimental lab, that milk fed. Uh, so, yeah. Okay, yeah, I can see it here on the website. I'm going to link this in the show notes too so people can look at the photos and, and buy some wine. But um, yeah, the color on this looks looks amazing and it's clocking in. It looks like you peed in a glass, basically. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> there's that. But yeah, yeah, 12.5% alcohol, as you kind of described it. I could picture this pairing with yeah, a bunch of different foods and yeah. you know, putting a little more chill on this one too. And, um, Actually, and, that and doesn't work. It. That, oh, it doesn't. No, it's it, this is one of the because when you do skin contact, the, the astringency tends to come out when you chill them. Mm, so okay, this That's is a that, good tip for people then. Yeah, so this is actually wine that should be served pretty much room temperature. It really shines there, and then you, the cooler it gets, the more yeah, it just becomes a little less accessible. Okay. Yeah. yeah, that's that's interesting. I mean, you you provide some good notes here and and things in the you know as far as information, but we can get into that a little bit too about kind of the business of wine and that sort sure. of thing. I don't think that, like you said, te- te- uh, serving temperature and those type of things. I think the more you know, people can provide the better for consumers who are, um, especially if they don't have a huge amount of experience with a certain varietal or something. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, how to best enjoy the wine. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think all of that is really helpful. So let's get into the Gordon W. Yeah. Uh, Ali Kant Boucher. Yeah. Right from Lodi, which I know is a, or used to be a pretty popular varietal too. Yeah. It used to be like, uh, it's popular for its coloring capability. It's very dark. Uh, it has a dark, it actually has um, a red juice as well. Not just the skins are red. Mm-hmm. It's very rare actually that's pretty rare right yeah. yeah so it's been bred for that purpose and it's a very sturdy grape but it's not an easy grape to work with in in making wine it's um uh, it's a tricky grape because it's 
how to say this, very shape-shifting throughout the winemaking process. And, and, and it can be a little confusing at times because it, it will taste really good for a month. And then the month after it tastes terrible again, and then it's good. And, and so it's been a long learning um, with Alicante. This is my second year now. And I've learned that that particular variety needs two things that are like kryptonite for small wineries. It needs time and it needs uh, oak. It's, it's a, it's a variety that really can take a lot of oak and, but it is a when you do it right. I mean, it's very challenging. Like I said, to 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 get them to the place you want them to go because they can quite easily become like monolithic or like lack a little bit of uh, varietal characteristics. I suppose you could say uh, they can be quite lumbering if you don't keep them. Uh, I wouldn't say light, but because it's not a light grape, it's actually pretty heavy grape it's more like i don't know if you drank some petit syrah i think they are quite similar and yeah petit syrah can also become quite monolithic and hard to deal with sometimes uh, i i find it's a hard grape to get really good wines from but when they are nice they can be amazing you know yeah you don't see too many petit syrahs as kind of just you know as a single varietal but once in a while i've right. seen them before and I, I think i've had one or two yeah but I'm going to stick with it. I'm fighting uh, the good fight, and I'm going to, you know, make Alicante <laughs> the best Alicante I can possibly make. Uh, and it, the first year was I, – I, I really like that wine. Uh, but it needs time, and it, you need to decant that for, I would say, a good hour. It's just um, – it's a wine that needs a little bit of, yeah, preparation in a way. So it's not as easily accessible as maybe the mission is. The mission is good straight out of the bottle you know, easy, easy to access. Yeah. yeah. And this fruit also comes from Lodi. Um, it's, it's similar to the first one. And this one is, is a 12.6% alcohol. Talk a little about, um, and, and like you mentioned, the juxtaposition, I think is really interesting with a, when I think of Petit Syrah, it's one of the, the uh, kind of the biggest, boldest grapes mm-hmm. and similar to this grape, as you mentioned, but you're making this in a, a such an elegant style and that lower ABV. So it's, yeah. You, know, you really get the, the the fruit and the flavors in that elegant style, yes, which I think do. is yeah. really interesting. Yeah. Talk a little about Lodi, uh, because you know people kind of know it for Zinfandel, yeah, as, exactly. as an up and coming region. But you know, Lodi is you know it's one of the oldest regions in California for grape growing. It's probably as old. Not many people know this that Los Angeles was the 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 heart of winemaking in California initially. And this was the biggest area for wine production. And then Lodi was kind of alongside with that. And Napa and all that stuff happened much, much later. Uh, But so the interesting thing about Lodi is that you have some really, really old uh, vines there. Uh, Some of them way over 100 years old. And because also... Uh, the real estate market there wasn't as kind of sexy as Napa. Uh, a lot of old stuff remained, you know, you know, in Napa, you can't afford to just let a field go with mission for that doesn't sell, you know, that's just not going to happen there. But in, in, in Lodi that happened, you know, so you can have stuff there that is kind of weird. And, and, and that's what makes Lodi interesting. It's also, you know, from a business perspective when you're a new winemaker you don't have a lot of money it is where you can get cheaper fruit you know 
Lodi is probably a fifth or a tenth of what Napa fruit is for the same variety, you know? So that's yeah. also something to take in, you know, this is the realities of winemaking, you know? Yeah, no, it, it makes a lot of sense. And as you mentioned, is is having that history and for people who have read about um, head trained vines versus, you know, trellis trained and, you know, there's, there's so many old vineyards that some of them can be over 120, 130 years old, which is, yeah. you know, there's a lot of history there. And I mean, they're rediscovering it now, I think. And it's great, like companies like Bedrock and Tegan from, you know, Sandlands and Turley are coming back to Lodi and elevating Lodi with their, because they make really nice wines, you know, and people listen to them and buy their wines. So I think Lodi is in for a, a little bit of a, a renaissance, you know, it's, Certainly has excellent uh, fruit there. You just need to find, you know, you know, it just has, Loda had a little bit of a bad rep for being cheaper jug wines or bigger Zinfandels that, you know, but it's, it's so much more there. You know, it's, there's a lot of interesting stuff there. Yeah. Like you said, there's some amazing producers, you know, including yourself. And as you mentioned, Bedrock and you know, there's so many now doing yeah doing some great work let's talk about the last one here flame to k yeah. um, i mean this is this is a story that i mean it's funny almost but so so one of the guys who i take the mission from he he's kind of i don't know what you call him he's like a grape consigliere up there he talk he knows everyone knows all the growers uh-huh. and he texts me and he says i have these weird grains called flape tokai do you want them because he kind of know i i was i'm into you know strange strange varieties. And I said, I never heard of them. What, what the hell are they? You know, he, he's like, Oh, it's an old table grape from the sixties, you know? From, okay. So then I don't think, what am I going to do with it? I can't make wine from that. I thought, then he sends me a photo of, he has a bunch in his hand and I see the skin is this radiant pink. You, you know, absolutely gorgeous. Right. And right there I thought, Oh, it'd be so cool if I could do like a skin contact, rosé so yeah I let it soak with the skins a little bit and have that beautiful color from the skins you know color the white wine so to speak so that's how that idea and i just as he sent me that photo that's when i thought of that idea i thought that'd be really interesting to do and as as things would have it i took a little bit you know whatever he had i think it was less than a ton from this old vineyard, those vines are from 1899. They're recorded wow. 1899. So they're over 100, yeah, 120 years, 121 years old. Anyway, and that wine came out really, really nice. I don't think anyone thought that. And even, you know, the the, the, the place I, the winery I rent space at, even those guys were like, what the hell are you thinking, Adam? This is a table grape. You can't make wine from these. And, and the berries were so big, they didn't even fit in the, the machinery did the, the, the stemmer. So we had to just crush him with the stems and everything just to bypass the whole the stemmer because they just wouldn't fit in there. Wow. So, yeah, you know, and it kind of goes to tell you that, you know, you should never discard uh, any anything really out of hand. But it could have gone sideways, you know, very badly. It just kind of worked, you know. So, and that wine's actually sold out, which is yeah, more amazing. Yeah. <laughs> nice yeah and i can see you produced uh, only 120 cases and the color yeah. on this is is just amazing it's kind of almost like a deep orange like you said has kind of like a pink hue to it um, yeah it's like an ambery pinkish amber yeah yeah 
So yeah, so that one sold out, but people can you know grab the other ones. You just kind of reminded me of something as far as um, you know we were talking about skin contact and some mm-hmm. of the other things there. As far as whole cluster, is that something you've you know considered doing? I know you typically with Syrah, and there's only certain varietals people do it with. Sometimes Pinot Noir, but is that is that something with any of the varietals you work with that you've you've thought about? I have not done that so far, but I did for 2019. I crushed much much lighter, so I get a little bit of that vibe. Okay, but not fully, but it would be something uh, I could see myself doing on maybe a couple of wines. You know, I think there's certain wines not suited for it because yeah, they have enough fruit anyway. You know. But, um, yeah, no, it, it'll probably be something I'll experiment with down the line. But I'm not like, you know, I, I just, if you, yeah, Crush Lightly is, I find, seems to be a nice in between those two without the hassle yeah. of going on. Whole cluster. <laughs> how do you, how do, and another winemaking question is how do you go about doing kind of stabilization? So I've heard about winemakers kind of using temperature control and, you know, there there are all these things that can happen, like fe- as far as feeding vitamins or I don't know, vitamins and minerals to yeah. to do the wine and different things. And like you said, the the term natural wine, it's kind of an empty. It meaning, is, you know, yeah. low intervention kind of makes yeah. more sense versus yes. you know you can go all the way to the other end of the spectrum, which yeah. is kind of grocery store wine. But yeah, you know, I've had like a few people on the show, Jim Dwayne is one from uh, CV and he, he told me he considers himself a natural winemaker. You know, he, he, he gets the fruit, he, he crushes it and it, you know, they're, they're very, you know, small additions and right. things and, and, and native fermentations and things. So, you know, it can be, it can be a tough thing to talk about and, you know, but as far as um, yeah, stabilizations, as far as uh, temperature control and things, I, I've, I often wonder about kind of more on that natural or low intervention side, how you handle things. Yeah. I mean, I gotta be full, you know, I'm such a new winemaker and I'm still very, very clueless. And so the place I rent space at, um, they have helped me a little bit with that kind of the chemical side of it, so to speak, or keeping uh-huh. track of those things and the nutrients, the yeast nutrients and stuff. Cause I, I just don't have the expertise in that yet. I'm now yeah. branching out into my own facility. So I'm going to have to learn nice. really, okay. really quickly. How when does that start for this upcoming vintage? Yeah, for this upcoming vintage. Um, so uh, it's baptism by fire for me personally, but I had the mission came in with something called a low uh, yan number. Uh, so it had low yeast nutrients. And that one we had to enrich, give the, the, the yeast some sort of nutrients so it could complete, you know, his, his, the fermentation. Uh, I don't think any one of the other ones had that. I would have to ask them what they added during that. But, you know, that was the one I know we added a little bit to. Just so yeah, and, yeah, and as you mentioned, I think the most important thing to remember for people out there listening is just the ethos of the winemaker and the brand. And as you mentioned, low intervention and 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 coming with that ethos. And if you, if you, if there's a stuck fermentation or if like, yeah, what do you different do? things that exactly. can go wrong? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, there's different things that things that can go wrong through the oh, process. Yeah. But as long as you have that ethos, yeah, like, kind of from the start, I think that is kind of the most important thing that should guide consumers. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. 
And let's talk a little bit and change gears here into Wine Berserkers, which is an online <laughs> forum. Yeah. And it's great for finding, you know, new winemakers. It's great for finding kind of, you know, you talked about packs and, um, you know, whether it's Folia and, uh, yep. you know, there, or there's so many, you know, so many labels I could name off. But it's I've used it as a resource to find, you know, wines and, and just kind of take the pulse of what's happening among the kind of the hardcore uh, fans yeah. of, of wine drinking, but talk a little about wine berserkers. Cause yeah, that's where I found little, you. It's a great forum actually. I mean, it is a lot of, if, you know, I'd say this with the utmost respect, but a lot of lawyers with, or doctors with good income there who yeah, love yeah. wine, you know, and buy good wine, you know? So there's a, maybe a, I wouldn't say it's a natural wine crowd. In fact, I think they're actually kind of, most of them are a little bit suspicious of the term and don't really like the term so much, but it is the, for me, I think it's the best wine forum because there's a, tons of knowledge there. People really know, you know, from vintage to vintage. Exactly. These, these are people who are serious about wine. And it was it was a good thing to get in there. And they have this thing each year, and they've had it for, I think, 15 years now or something, where new winemakers or, or established winemakers can offer their wines on one particular day, on Wine Berserker Day, which is January 26th, I think, 29th or something. And I set my goal on that day, like already that fall. I said, I'm going to release to these members on that day, you know, my wine. And I hadn't even bottled by then, by then, but I, you know, I had the offer ready. So I offered them, you know, like, if you buy now and buy into this, you'll get it in two months after I bottle. So that was a great thing, you know, it's probably, and this is more marketing talk, but probably the best thing I've done, you know, and they, they, I remember I was in, at, in Spain on a job on a commercial I shot for my cinematography stuff. And I was looking at my orders coming into the phone and it was like, very very good you know first release first support from them uh, so i would recommend any winemaker uh, new or established to come with a good offer on berserker day and it's only valid for one or two days so you know, it's not like you're gonna you know ruin your inventory you, 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 you it's, it's a good thing to to get your wine out there and that generated a lot more sales uh coming you know people bought again and uh, they recommended it to friends and it was just, that's the best thing I've done. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it, part of, you know, the business of wine and this is a startup winemaker is finding outlets to, to sell wine. And I think that's something that's been happening more and more in a positive way, I guess, when you look at Instagram live and you look at even podcasts, like, like I'm trying to do here, yeah. more wine content to yes. have kind of some of the, you know, hardcore people, but also people kind of on the fringes that might be, you know, this podcast is all about food and wine. So yeah. we're pretty inclusive. We cover things about food and culture and, and definitely wine, but, you know, hopefully to bring new people in who you, they wouldn't have found, found no. it before, but curation is a, is a pretty big, very one. big. And the, funny, you should mention Instagram. Maybe this is something for another podcast. Cause you could, I could talk about this for a long time, but I see a lot of wineries doing really, really bad with their Instagram and social media stuff. And I wish I could talk to their marketing team because not that I'm doing it so well either. I, I, I severely neglected, in fact, but you, you know, you have to be a little bit personable and you have to engage and you, 
there's so many wineries who take a shot of a rosé bottle against the sunset, and it's like, <laughs> right. like rosé Friday, or what are you drinking tonight? And it's like, that's not how you engage with people. You have to be personable. And thankfully, I'm just a one-man band, so I can be personable. And I, if you're a big corporate winery, it's hard to be that, you know, because the original owner is probably dead or sold it years ago. How do you engage on that that level? And this is maybe talk for some some other time, but it's very interesting. You know, you can do so much with social media if you if you put your heart to it. No, that's a really good point, and, it, and it, I think there's kind of that groundswell of people that do want to support independent winemakers, oh. especially as you know this space does transition to more you know corporate ownership and things. And like you said, there, there's always a place for both, but there there is that need to support you know, small businesses and startups. The other thing to, you know, to touch on here is you had a couple threads just about wine shipping. And that's something that I've been kind of passionate about learning over the past few months of, you know, looking at different business models. And as far as, you know, shipping and, you know, there was one business model I was reading about where it's a wine storage facility, and then you can, you know, schedule a time to have the wine delivered to you from your kind of wine cellar slash locker, yeah. which was kind of interesting. Yeah. And, you know, there's also, I've been doing some work with a few people about, you know, young people and millennials, they don't have a cellar. No. Maybe they have a wine fridge that, that holds 10, 15, 20 bottles. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's a question of, um, you know, how, how, how can you sell wine to those consumers, um, yeah. you know, with that piece and then also doing, you know, there's a couple startups kind of and in, in shippers tackling the, the actual mechanism for delivery. Cause you know, you do have to sign for a package 21 and over. Some of that has been suspended with COVID, which is nice, but yeah. as far as having like a much shorter time frame and more curated delivery. So maybe you schedule like a one hour or two hour delivery window and maybe you yeah. get a text message so you can be right there. But with, you know, the big shipping companies and I'll, I'll just, I'll name them because they're so huge. FedEx and UPS. I've had I've had some bad experiences oh already. Yeah. Um, and it's 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 crazy that there's not a better option out there. I spend so much money with these guys and, and like it's it's pretty it's pretty bad. When it goes bad, it goes really, really bad, you know. Uh I think that's a great idea, actually. I've been thinking about that myself. Like there should be a way of combining storage with delivery, you know. As well, so it's like you can have your wine cellar or locker, as well as get it delivered and ship wines uh, anywhere. I mean, in a, in a dream world, it would be like this, right? For me, at least, a guy would come pick up your wine at the winery, or you privately, if you're sending something, and it will it would be cold chain the whole way to the end user, and and you could track that, you know, even with the temperature, because then what happens now is in the summers here. You basically, there's no wine cells. Nobody, nobody wants to take delivery of wine that's been sitting in a truck, a hundred degree truck for five days yeah. when it gets lost in Las Vegas, you know? And I, I totally get that. But, you know, and here's the other thing. Like, at least I, as a consumer, when I buy wine online, I am not time sensitive. I'd rather it arrives in a good way and, and has been cold chain delivery. If it takes even three weeks for it to arrive, that's okay, you know? Because I don't buy for something I need to have tomorrow. Then I go to the store if I need that it that urgently. So it could you could take a time with it. It could be combining 
logistically loads that go in the same way and, to, and, and maybe save a little money that way. I don't know, but yeah, I mean, that's a really good point. And I think a lot of people do resort to that of going to a local wine shop and Los Angeles has a handful of them and, you know, whatever city you're in they're they're probably at least one or two. Um, but, you know, is that something where you've been able to place or distribute your wines into any uh, retail location? <laughs> no, I had the ba- the worst of luck, obviously, like with COVID. I released, yeah. I, I bottled my wine, I think, mid-February. And it was pretty much right after that. I was I was already, we had set up meetings. I was going to go to see Domain, Silver Lake Wine, all these, you know, cool retailers. And then COVID happened and I never got that far. I have my friend has a coffee shop downtown. He has he carries some of my wine. That's the only place I'm in at the moment. I am talking with a few now though, so hopefully uh, there'll be opportunities um, to get in there. Great, great. Well, people can look forward to that. We're going to link it in the show notes, so if, if people swing by the the coffee place, but you know you can <laughs> buy the wine online, like you said, um, you know, and and. Uh, People can see it all here. And um, Adam, really appreciate you having you on. Thank you so much, Ryan. Pleasure, pleasure. Thanks for joining us today. If you like the show, we encourage you to tell a friend. You can support the show by subscribing to our email newsletter for just five bucks a month. Find it on our website at goldenwestpodcast.com. In it, you'll find unique bottles from both popular and undiscovered winemaking talent, among other things. If you have feedback, find us on Twitter at goldenwestpod, or you can email us at goldenwestpodcast at gmail.com. As a reminder, All opinions expressed by guests are solely their own and may or may not reflect the views of their employer or any other affiliated entity. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a basis for investment decisions or any other advice. Please eat and drink responsibly and thanks for listening.